This is an ABC podcast. Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National on air, online or via your ABC Listen app. Thanks for tuning in. Now, coming up later... We need to exert more pressure and unified pressure on Beijing um, to come clean and to tell us what happened. Because again, this is not a political issue. This is about public health and it's about a pattern of behavior. And if we don't get to the bottom of this, it could very easily happen again. Stay with us for Mary Kissel, a senior advisor to the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, on the Wuhan lab theory. But first, the COVID crisis in Southeast Asia. Well, it was not long ago when India was the epicentre of the COVID pandemic. Now the virus is ravaging Southeast Asia. And it's Indonesia that represents the world's highest count of new infections. Hospitals are overstretched. Patients are struggling to access ventilators. Cemeteries are full. More than a thousand people are dying each day. Even vaccinated doctors are dying. So how did the outbreak spiral out of control across our northern neighbour? Professor Michelle Ford is Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney, and she's co-author of Labour and Politics in Indonesia. Michelle, welcome to Radio National. Thanks, Tom. Now, until recently, many nations in the region, Vietnam, Thailand, even Indonesia, among others, they'd more or less contained the virus yet they're now facing their largest outbreaks yet. What happened? Well, I think it's important to set the scene a little bit. And what we can see is there's a continuing difference between the countries in island Southeast Asia, like Philippines, Indonesia, and so on, and the ones in mainland Southeast Asia, like Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam. And in the first year of the pandemic, the numbers were much higher in the island states than in the mainland states. And what we've seen most recently, though, is that there's a convergence. And as you say, the numbers are really scary. So currently the highest number of cases is in Malaysia at over 34,500 per million. But the biggest increases have been in Vietnam, which was doing really well until the Delta variant hit. But there's been an 800% rise in case numbers per million in July. And there have been other countries that have received similar, experienced similar rises like Laos, Thailand, and so on. But do you think the, the official figures vastly understate the spread in the region, given that testing's presumably been limited? Well, testing is a really big issue. Um, it's very limited. It varies though a lot. In Singapore, is up to two and a half million per million, and in Laos, just forty-two thousand. So clearly, the death rates are another thing we look at in the region. And although they're more reliable, then they range from about one per million in Laos to three hundred and fifty-two per million in Indonesia. But they're understated too. Um, I know from personal experience, people we know in Indonesia who've had COVID who've clearly died from it, but been recorded as other reasons for death. Now, you asked me, Tom, earlier about the the differences, what's feeding the differences. In the first year, there was a real hub effect around Singapore. So Singapore was really exposed because of all the international travel, whereas some of countries in the regions weren't. And in some countries, there were really sharp crackdowns, like in Cambodia. There was also cultural differences and so on. And I think in terms of the reasons for the uptick, we can see that there's a real problem in reinforcing the public health measures in countries where there's little social protection for workers. So if they can't get to work, it's really hard. And once the virus gets out, it's very difficult to weed out, especially with Delta. And then, of course, there's low vaccination rates. And just to give you a sense of this, 
in June, only 13.3 million Indonesians were fully vaccinated. And I mean, Indonesia has a population of 276 million. And in Vietnam, like Australia, we were really slow to get on the vaccine train. And by late July, only half a percent of the population was fully vaccinated. So I think it's sort of a triple whammy in that respect. Yeah. And if you look at Indonesia, I mean, it obviously has a dense population, a weak healthcare system. Um, is it surprising that it took so long before Indonesia was hit in a major way, Michelle? Yes, it was really surprising. I mean, for Southeast Asia, it was hit early and hard, but on global scales, as you say, it wasn't. And I think some of the factors here are because Indonesia is the most democratic country in the region, it's actually harder to crack down in the way that, say, Cambodia did. And there are also fears of a repeat of the violence of 1998 when Indonesia transitioned from authoritarianism. Um, when people really lost their livelihoods, they, they went out in the streets. So I think there was quite a lot of fear politically that that might happen. Yeah, this was the fall of Suharto at the height of the Asian financial crisis, right? Yes, absolutely. And the Asian financial crisis absolutely destroyed Indonesia's economy. Then another reason why it might have been bigger and wasn't was actually the time of the Eid celebrations at the end of the Muslim fasting month, which were in late May last year. And everyone goes home in this period. And there was real fears of spread then, but it didn't really eventuate. But this year, I'm sure that's been a factor in the, the recent rises. What about the shifting demographics of COVID deaths across the region? Yeah, I think, you know, as we're experiencing in Australia, the Delta variant in particular is hitting the young harder. And there have been a lot of reports in Indonesia of deaths well under 50, even in their teens. But, you know, a lot of people we know with school-aged children have died. Um, so I think it's a very serious issue. And the demographic dividend that people thought would protect them in the early period really is increasingly fragile as a protective factor, I think. We often talk about the digital evolution of, of the media landscape on this program and elsewhere. And the spread of misinformation. How much of a problem is the spread of misinformation across the region when it comes to combating the virus? Oh, it's a huge problem, Tom. Uh, in Indonesia, there's been a real push from the Islamist far right, um, very vocally anti-vaccine, but there's also a lot of conspiracy theories more generally about government exaggeration of the pandemic in order to control the population, or that there's some kind of elite global conspiracy perpetrated by the World Health Organization and other international organizations. Another big problem is the fake cure problem. So lots of people trying to sell fake cures or relying on uh, folklore and so on to try to protect people from the virus. And then there's another issue in the Philippines, for example, a dengue virus in the past really failed and a lot of kids were very sick as a result of that. So there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy, but also rumours that, for example, if you take the vaccine, the president can kill you with a push of a button. Um, and there are US conspiracy theorists, including one called Joseph McCullough, who's relocated to the Philippines now, who's really helping to feed this misinformation. My guest is Professor Michelle Ford from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and we're talking about COVID and Southeast Asia. Michelle, let's turn to those vaccinations you just mentioned. It's only about 15% of Indonesia's, what, 270 million people. Only 15% have received a dose of, uh, of a coronavirus vaccine. Just 6% are fully inoculated. Now, Indonesia has relied heavily on this Sinovac biotech from China, but it's proved less effective than the other shots. Could the US donation of millions of the Moderna vaccine, could that be a, a COVID game changer in Indonesia? Well, it's great that the US is going to donate 4 million doses, but given a population of 276 million, it really is just a drop of in the ocean. 
Indonesia's um, vaccine stocks are about 118.7 million doses, most of which are Sinovac either produced locally, mostly produced locally under licence with materials from China. In the imported doses, there are some AstraZeneca as well, but mostly Sinovac. So there's the issue of efficacy, but then there's just the issue of reaching the population. And unfortunately, 4 million doses is not going to do it. Okay, but this is all in the context of this increasingly intense strategic competition between Washington and Beijing. Australia, much of Northeast Asia have become increasingly anxious about China's rapidly expanding footprint in the region. How does Southeast Asia, uh, especially in the context of this pandemic, how does the region fit into this broader strategic competition? Oh, it's a really key part. China's been consciously building support in the region for many years now through the Belt and Road Initiative, various forms of investment and aid, but also cultural diplomacy. And I think, you know, the vaccine diplomacy we've seen in the last year is part of that policy. And if we think about the US, by contrast, its attention's really ebbed and flowed since the 70s. It certainly understands how important the region is in its positioning in regard to China. And it was clear in Obama's pivot to East Asia strategy. The Trump presidency was a real blip in that sort of approach, but Biden's recently started to reassert the US presence in the region. But it's really not that effective compared to China's approach. And China's making big inroads, not just in traditional targets like Myanmar and Laos, mainland Southeast Asian countries that are close to China, but also even in countries like Indonesia, which have been historically firmly in the US camp. Yes, but aren't a lot of these countries having territorial disputes with Beijing? I mean, the Philippines, for example, of course, won that historic uh, Hague ruling in 2016 against the People's Republic of China. No, that is true. And the Philippines and Vietnam have been particularly resilient and vociferous in their opposition of Chinese encroachment on the South China Sea. But that's only part of the puzzle. And if we look at the, especially the landlocked countries, um, there's so much Chinese money in those countries now, and they really do depend on China for many things. And as I said, even in Indonesia, you know, this vaccine diplomacy is a really big breakthrough, I think, for China in the Indonesian context. Finally, this brings us to Australia. Now, as you well know, last year, Canberra elevated Southeast Asia as a diplomatic and economic priority. It's widely perceived that we did this because it's an attempt to reduce our dependence on China, our trade dependence on China. So as a result, uh, Canberra pledged more than $550 million to reassert uh, Australia's presence in the region. To what extent has COVID changed things, particularly in the last few months? Well, it is really an important part of the world for us, and it's even more strategically important given the US-China competition. But Canberra doesn't always keep this in front of mind beyond the aid program, which remains large, though, of course, it's been slashed a lot since about 2014. This recent refocusing is important, but again, the money is not that much, right? 550 million of COVID recovery initiatives compared to uh, about $10.2 billion of Chinese investment in the region. It's important, but it's only a small gesture. That said, to your question, I think it, we are really well placed to help in the short term to support Southeast Asia through the COVID recovery and to use that initiative to shore up our influence in the region. But we have a bigger issue, and that's our declining Southeast Asia capability, which is really plummeting with the decimation of the Indonesian language teaching in Australian schools and universities, and that's the only Southeast Asian language we teach at any scale in Australia. But also, there are very few initiatives to embed knowledge of Southeast Asia in a 
curriculum or in other parts of the Australian society and economy. And if we want long-term influence, we really need to bite the bullet and address that capacity issue. Yeah, but how many times have you heard prime ministers make this an issue? Going back to the Hawke era, remember the Fitzgerald inquiry into teaching Asian languages in schools? We still really haven't progressed in the last 35 years, have we? Well, we, we made progress. We made progress. There was Asian languages in a lot more schools in the mid-90s, and then we regressed. And I think that really speaks to my point before that, you know, Canberra, governments of whatever persuasion, lose sight of the importance of this region. We are in this region. It is absolutely key to our future prosperity, and yet we're not taking that seriously. I suppose my point is that uh, high school students are far more likely to study French in Year 12 than they are Indonesian. Yes, and that's a problem. And it needs strategic direction from governments all around the country because people don't just suddenly decide to study a language that they don't know, they don't understand. And it takes a level of resourcing that we're just not seeing. And lip service is not enough. This really does need a big resourcing push. A reminder that Southeast Asia is so important to Australia's foreign policy interests. Michelle, great having you on Radio National. Thanks, Tom. Professor Michelle Ford, she's director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney, and she's co-author of Labour and Politics in Indonesia, published by Cambridge University Press. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, the COVID pandemic started in Wuhan, China in late 2019, yet we're no closer to understanding the origins of the virus. Now, the conventional explanation, at least until recently, is that the virus is a spillover from animals to humans. A more intriguing explanation is that the virus was leaked from a lab in Wuhan. Now, when Donald Trump and his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, raised that prospect last year that the virus had escaped from a Wuhan lab, Well, the media denounced them. A kooky conspiracy theory, we were told. However, when President Biden ordered intelligence agencies to investigate and report its findings on the origins of the virus and to explore whether it might have escaped from a Wuhan lab, well, suddenly the media started talking differently and taking the theory seriously. So to address the Wuhan lab theory in the context of a rising China, let's welcome back to the show Mary Kissel, who happened to be Senior Advisor to the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. These days, Mary is the Executive Vice President of Stevens, Inc. Mary, welcome back to Between the Lines. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Now, for months, the media ruled out the lab leak theory. On what basis did they do so? Um, Well, it's a great question, Tom. I think you can say that the media's reaction last year had an awful lot to do with politics and politicking and not a lot to do with the fact pattern that we had observed. Now, it's important to say up front that we may never know the origins of this virus precisely because the only people who who have the knowledge and the the access that we need are the people who run the Chinese Communist Party. And to date, they haven't allowed uh, a serious uh, and thorough independent investigation. This point about the media is very important. It wasn't just that the lab theory was dismissed. It was not even deemed possible. Discussion was deliberately extinguished on tech platforms and in distinguished scientific journals. Yet the same groups now take it seriously. Well, 
you know, it's important to lay out some of what we observed, namely um, that access to the lab was restricted um, around the time that um, we believe the outbreak might have started. Um, scientists and uh, doctors and uh, other kinds of whistleblowers were disappeared. We know now because uh, when we were in the administration, we, we declassified data that explained that um, the PLA was present in the lab. We also know that there were safety concerns uh, raised by the U.S. State Department in 2018 uh, in a series of cables. And you've just seen an enormous amount of obfuscation and misinformation from the Chinese Communist Party. Layer on top of that, the influence um, that Beijing has wielded over the World Health Organization and those executives. And, you know, you add it all up and that's very suspicious. On the other side of it, of the equation, you have the animal theory, which the only evidence so far that we have of that is the CCP's word and its propaganda. So I think, you know, look, um, to be fair, it could be true that we had to wait a year for no evidence of the animal theory to present itself for the media to take this theory seriously. But it's important that we do, because back in SARS, Tom, after SARS came out, we knew, uh, the WHO knew, as did the then Bush administration, that the likeliest thing, the likeliest next pandemic we would face would be a coronavirus emanating from mainland China. They changed the regulations and the rules. They beefed them up. They gave the WHO more power. Um, to to talk about this and enforce their protocols should this happen, and it didn't. And so if we don't get to the origins of this virus, which would be an apolitical uh, effort, um, then we risk having this happen again. Yes, but some people will keep saying, what difference does it make whether the virus was transmitted through animals or escaped from the lab? I mean, does it matter after all the US and its allies, I mean, they're not going to punish China by, say, demanding compensation for global suffering and death. You say this does matter because we need to make sure we avoid another pandemic. Exactly, because it's a pattern of behaviour. You saw how the Chinese Communist Party reacted after SARS, um, which was to delay and to obfuscate. In some respects, we got lucky because SARS wasn't is easily transmitted as COVID is. But look, this virus is now part of the world. We're going to have to deal with it. It's going to mutate. It's going to be here for a long time uh, because of the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. Another thing that Secretary Pompeo talked about last year is regardless of where it came from, we can set that aside. But the CCP, by not reporting it properly and refusing help that the United States very generously and immediately offered an outbreak that may have been contained to the city of Wuhan spread across the world. So this is deeply concerning behavior. It's good to see that Tedros, who runs the WHO, has started to make noise that this is unacceptable, that they will not allow an independent investigation. But we need to exert more pressure and unified pressure on Beijing. If we don't get to the bottom of this, it could very easily happen again. My guest is Mary Kissel. She's the Executive Vice President of Stevens, Inc. She's a former senior advisor to the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. President Nixon once said he feared he had created a Frankenstein by opening the world to the CCP. 
and here we are. We, the freedom-loving nations of the world, must induce China to change in more creative and assertive ways because Beijing's actions threaten our people and our prosperity. Securing our freedoms from the Chinese Communist Party is the mission of our time, and America is perfectly positioned to lead it because our founding principles give us that opportunity. That's the former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Now, of course, Nixon and his National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, they're widely credited with the Great China Opening. Mary Kissel, in hindsight, were US administrations from Nixon to Obama, were they naive in thinking that engagement with China would help transform China into a more liberal, democratic nation? Well, I, I think that it would be ungenerous to call it naive because I think presidents make decisions based on what they observe at the time. And President Nixon uh, thought that opening up to China would help him solve a couple of problems. Um, he wanted the Chinese help uh, to exit Vietnam. He wanted to triangulate and to uh, use the relationship with Beijing against the Soviet Union. One of the, I think, greatest accomplishments of the Trump administration was to look at the world with fresh eyes and ask, are, are we really treating China and understanding China for what it is? Are we looking at it rationally and honestly? And what we discovered was that China not only uh, was not uh, becoming democratic and more liberal, it was going in the opposite direction and it had been for many decades. And that's unfortunate for the Chinese people. Then again, could democracy in China lead to all sorts of unintended consequences that hurt America <laughs> in the cause of freedom? Here's a Singaporean well, intellectual, Kishore Marbulbani, on this program. My warning to the West is be careful what you wish for. Because if China became democratic, I guarantee you, a democratically elected Chinese leader will be far more nationalist mm. and far more assertive than Xi Jinping is. Well, some say that Xi Jinping is already nationalist. He is. In fact, but he reflects in many ways a new assertive population in China. But fortunately, the Chinese Communist Party is strong enough to put a cock on Chinese nationalism and not allow it to explode. But if you had a democratically elected leader, the world would be a far more unstable place. In fact, the Chinese Communist Party is delivering a global public good by making sure that on balance, China remains a responsible stakeholder in the global system. That's the former Singaporean diplomat, Kishore Mabobani, with me on Between the Lines, Mary Kissel. You know, it's really a breathtaking assertion you're talking about a regime that is committing crimes against humanity and genocide in Xinjiang. And what Kishore is saying is that that is a public good. That's stunning. But look, um, we can't predict the future of what will happen with China, but we can look at what past experience has taught us about the Chinese people and look at the great and vibrant dem democracy of the island of Taiwan for instance. Um, look at how the Chinese-American community has flourished and contributed to our great nation. Look how it's contributed to your nation, Tom. Um, so again, you know, the assertion that somehow the world is better off with a regime that violates uh, other nations' sovereign territory, be it the what they're doing to the Philippines and the waters around the Senkaku Islands or off the coast of Vietnam, 
that engages in vast, vast propaganda disinformation campaigns on our social media and in print and television stations uh, that they beam into our countries um, that cheats in the global trading system and, and takes away jobs and livelihoods from hardworking Americans and Australians and from a regime that openly says that they want their way of life to dominate our world. Um, I just think that, you know, you also underestimate the Chinese people themselves who have been forced to live under such a brutal and oppressive regime. Look at what the people of Hong Kong accomplished, given a measure of freedom. And what the Chinese regime has done to the people of Hong Kong, eventually that's what they want to do to you. That's the message. And Xi Jinping is quite open about that, the general secretary, when he speaks to his own people. It's just that the media doesn't report what he says to his people. But Kishore Mabobani is, is not alone. I mean, you would be well aware of the many critics of the Australian government of Prime Minister Scott Morrison, their former diplomats, corporate lobbyists, academic historians in this country. And they say that Canberra is poking the eye of the Chinese government because of the bipartisan policies such as our foreign interference laws, uh, our rejection of Huawei the on the 5G digital network bid, our call for an international inquiry into the Wuhan origins. Now, these, these announcements have obviously upset Beijing, which is why the regime has imposed tariffs on Australia and imposed a diplomatic freeze on Canberra. But this just shows that there are, there are quite a few Australians, there are a minority, who'd agree with Kishore Mabobani, Mary. Well, you've raised an, an, an interesting and difficult problem, which is that the threat that the free world faces from the Chinese Communist Party is markedly different from the threat that we faced from the Soviet Union, because you mentioned corporate lobbyists. We have the same issue in this country, Tom, which is that um, we have many, many countries that are now so intricately tied economically whether it's to manufacturing operations or to selling to the Chinese consumer, that they're effectively co-opted. And they are serving as a lobbyist for Beijing because it serves their interests. And that's why it is so supremely important um, for governments to start laying down uh, what is allowable and what is not. Um, the Trump administration, for instance, started to protect our strategic industries. So we had a policy that said we will not allow Huawei, ZTE, other Chinese surveillance networks to operate and spy on our people and violate their privacy. We cannot rely on China to provide key goods such as pharmaceutical products or semiconductors, which is a big one. And the Biden administration has continued these policies, and I think that's very prudent and to their credit that they do so. But, you know, when you hear lobbyists and, and others speak up and say, you know, you're poking the bear, it's our fault, uh, it's not the actions of Beijing, you have to step back from it and say, what are their incentives to say that? Why are they making that argument? And, you know, if we're going to change it and protect our freedoms, who has to make that change? Because, you know, you, in some respects, you don't want CEOs making political decisions because CEOs aren't accountable to the public. But politicians are. They can be voted in and out in free societies. And so I think the hope is that you, you continue to see the political leadership and then you allow the people of Australia and the people of the United States to vote on those policies and whether or not they think that it's in your country and our country's national security. 
Um, we have seen enormous bipartisan support here in the United States um, for these policies to to protect our national security. And I think that's a good thing. We will have disagreements. We will have arguments about it. We will have critics. But the direction, I think, is uh, is moving in the right way. Mary, we are out of time. Thanks so much for being on ABC Radio again. It's a pleasure to be with you, Tom. Mary Kissel is Executive Vice President of Stevens, Inc., who served as Senior Advisor to the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Well, that's it for the program. And remember to hear this or past episodes, including our recent debates on COVID zero policy and net zero policy on carbon emissions, go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you get your shows online. I'm Tom Switzer and thanks for listening. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.